can be seated. Thank you, musicians and choir, as you're making your way down. Uh, next Sunday morning, by the way, I mentioned this last week, we're going to have a very special service, so you want to make sure that you're here and that you're here on time and ready to go. The, we're going to have uh, some special choir performances. We'll also be celebrating baptism, so it's going to be a, a wonderful, amazing day as we prepare ourselves for uh, ministry out in our community that afternoon. Let's get our Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 1, page 1390 in the Pew Bible in front of you. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to finish the discussion that we started last week uh, in our sermon series I'm calling House of Mirrors. If you weren't here last week, uh, God did a great work among us in our hearts and through His Word as we uh, thought about this issue of identity and how it impacts our lives and how the world and the enemy desires for us to wander in what I call a house of mirrors, which is basically a, uh, a bunch of mirrors that distort everything. They make everything that you look at uh, as if something that they're not. So they bend things out of proportion, uh, just change what reality is. And so you wander through a house of mirrors and you are totally confused as to what's even going on. It makes reality seem uh, completely um, foreign to everything that your senses are taking in. And really as we sort of approach this morning and thinking about all the things that God showed us last Sunday morning, you know, my heart this week is really burdened that we wouldn't come to this time and think about this as just another moment. That these are not just moments. These are opportunities that God gives us. And I know that there are many of you who struggle in many ways and suffer on a regular basis and face challenges that you have been unsuccessful in uh, overcoming. And I believe that God's aim is to help us this morning, to give us clarity, to reform us in a sense, because um, this conversation we're going to have has the potential to truly, truly change us from the inside out from here forward. So let's pray and ask God's help. Father, we thank you for your word. We are humble this morning as we have it before us and recognize that this is from your heart to your people, Lord, and that each of us can receive this gift this morning that you have intended for us, Lord. It is exactly what we need to know, exactly what we need to hear. And we thank you in advance, Lord, and we pray that you would help us, help us to do what so oftentimes seems unnatural to us in this day and age. But to 
focus and to listen and to have ears to hear and allow our hearts, Lord, to be a funnel to receive your word that you might work in us in a supernatural way, Lord. Thank you for what is possible this morning. We give you glory, praise, and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. I do want you to know that as we are here this morning, uh, enjoying one another's company and spending this time together, there are 140 people uh, up at Mississippi College right now going through Rescue 100 Jackson. And so they are uh, embarking on their final uh, time together. And they've been, we were, I was up there with a, f- a few folks from our fellowship on Friday night. And then they were in there all day yesterday. And this morning they'll be finishing up. And uh, there will be a radical change in the uh, needs of children in that area. And it's just another reminder of. Uh, how grateful I am and how grateful we all should be to be a part of a fellowship that's not afraid to dream impossible dreams and see what God has done. And uh, by the way, while I'm thinking about it, while I was up there, I was able to uh, sit down with the powers that be, and we will be having another training on the coast in May of next year. And so please be uh, encouraging people that you work with, people that you may know, that there will be a training. I, I hope to, I want to have that in Biloxi, but there'll be a training in May. And so I hope that we can train a hundred or so more families. It would be a tremendous opportunity. Well, Satan, as we learned last week, uh, has no authority over who we are. But the fact that he has no authority over who we are does not automatically make us able to experience the life that God saved us to experience. And so there's this, uh, there's this in-between in the Christian life where God has on one hand given us everything that we need for life and godliness, but on the other hand, for, for so many, so often, uh, victory seems so elusive. It seems so... Uh, the peace and the joy and the things that the Bible talks about uh, repetitively over and over and over seem to be so um, elusive. And we struggle trying to figure out, you know, the, is it the world in which we live in and, and is, it, is it all the, the influences of the world? Are there things we need to change? Is it, you know, what's wrong with our behavior? Why don't I have the discipline I want to have? Why am I not able to do the things that I want to do? And so on and so forth. And so I, again this morning, start by laying a principle out. One simple principle to lay out the things we'll talk about this morning. Satan cannot change the way. Here's your first blanks. He cannot change in any way the essence of what God has accomplished in you at salvation. He cannot alter. He cannot change. He cannot shift. He cannot manipulate. He cannot do anything. He is utterly powerless in the face of what God has accomplished in you at salvation. If you are a child of God this morning, you must begin with this truth. You must know this at the root, at the core of who you are. And so what does the enemy do 
when we get saved? Does he just give up, throw the towel in, uh, say, well, it's over now because I'm powerless against the change that God has brought in our lives at salvation? That's the furthest thing from what Satan does. What he does is he then changes his strategy. Because he's powerless at what God's accomplished in you and me at salvation, he then devotes all of his time, energy, and effort into trying to distort or to prevent you from knowing what God has done in you at salvation. What he wants to do is he wants to, he wants to lessen to whatever degree he can your understanding of what God has done in you, what is possible for you, what, what you are capable of in Christ. All of those things are what he has invested all of his time and energy in trying to stop you from understanding. And so if you remember, uh, a couple of years ago, I was talking about identity, and I was talking about Jed Clampett Christianity, and that's exactly what I'm talking about this morning. The fact that, like Jed Clampett, living on his farm, out looking for food, poor, uh, has absolutely no idea that he possesses unlimited resources until he shoots the ground, and up from the ground comes bubbling crude, Right? But what you have to realize is that the fact that he possessed unlimited resources had absolutely no bearing on his life because he didn't know what those resources were. And for you and me, so oftentimes, the fact that God has accomplished so much in our lives at salvation will, will mean nothing in your experience day in and day out if you don't know it. You'll continue to live as if you're poor, you'll continue to walk in the way in which you've always walked. There will be very little uh, noticeable difference between the old you and the new you. And then we'll read passages of Scripture where the Bible says things like you're a new creation. Behold, all things are new and you'll, you know, you'll, you'll just struggle with that. Like, what, what is that? How does that work out? Is that something in the future? Is that? No, that's now. That's now. And what we have to do is ground ourselves in what really is going on around us. Maybe on the flip side, you could think to yourself, well, what would happen to somebody who lived their life as if they had unlimited resources, but they really didn't? It would be equally as tragic, now wouldn't it? If you were running around spending money like crazy, buying things, thinking you could just bring it up and the bill was going to be paid, and then suddenly you found out, uh-oh, don't nudge your partner next to you. I see some of you husbands are like, <clears throat> You see, once the truth gets distorted in either direction, it's going to be disastrous. Deception always brings destruction. Always. Because God created us to operate in truth. By truth, in the way Satan incarcerates you in the prison of his house of mirrors is to use your performance to give you identity. You see, here's where we left off last week, and this is the next part, is that I want to just expose to you the tactic that is used 
to rip apart so many people's lives and to cause so much pain and so much suffering and so much toiling and so much striving that is utterly and completely unnecessary that God has already resolved in you at salvation. And what, he, what happens is we get lulled into this performance-based identity and then disaster is sure to follow. You see, once you define yourself by what you do or what's been done to you, uh, you basically slam the cell door shut. You immediately incarcerate yourself in a forever spiral of discouragement and defeat. Think about it. When you, as I was challenging you last week about who you are and how do you define who you are and if I were to uh, hand you, uh, I thought about handing everybody name tags as they walked in this morning that just said, hi, I am. And then having all of you fill out the name tags, but you can't put your name. You have to put something else. And then thinking about what would be on all those tags. And it would say things like, hi, I am... You know, I am a mother, or I am a father, or I am a student, or I am a child, or I, you know, I am a nurse, or I am a teacher, or I am a construction worker, or I am a... And all of those things are false. That's not who you are. Because we, we define ourselves by what we do, and then here's what happens. So, so, what, so how does that, where does that lead us? What happens when you define yourselves? You, you define yourself as a mom. And then motherhood's not going so well. Or by your occupation and you get laid off from your job. Or, you, or anything else. Or what if you define yourself by something that's been done to you? And so you, you're, you're this thing that's happened to you. And that's who you are. And that's how you think of yourself. And then, then what? Then you spend the rest of your life just uh, existing as this it, it becomes your identity as if that's the way uh, things were always supposed to be. No, listen. If you root your identity in performance, if you do that, you will forever misdefine yourself. Forever. You will never hit the mark. I promise you, it will never happen. You will never find satisfaction. You will never be enough at whatever it is you're using as your marker. Or your marker will never be resolved because it's already been done. Whatever the case may be, you'll never accurately hit the pinpoint of who you are in Christ. Ever. Because nothing about who Christ created you to be is connected to your performance. Amen? Salvation has nothing to do with your performance. You didn't do anything to earn salvation. Grace came to you through faith. It was a gift of God, not of works, lest any man can boast. Listen, it was a free gift, not performance-based. To flip it around and then to create an environment where God saved me, and it didn't have anything to do with me, but now He's created me to be something that has something to do with me, would be to completely flip the gospel upside down. No, no. And so you can see why uh, the world and Satan are so active at trying to keep us from discovering who we are in Christ and 
keep us living in bondage, even though we're free. Even though we're free. Spiritual identity is the master key that unlocks the door to spiritual victory. Spiritual identity is the master key that unlocks the door to spiritual victory. So what I want to do is spend the rest of our time this morning talking about how you can have victory in who God made you to be. How you can conquer this horrible propensity and how I hopefully will show you how obvious it is, how rampant it is all around us. Point number one. And it's going to take a little bit of thought. The key to my identity is always and only in my birth. It's in your birth. So pre-Christ, you were born and I was born to some parents. Whether it was a parent or a set of parents, it still took two parents in order for you to be born. And so you were born to some parents. Now, I want us to think for a moment about that birth. I want to think for a moment about how much you had to do with that birth. How much you had to do with who your parents were, with when you were born, with how that birth was going to go, with where you were born, with anything about that whole situation, with, with what your name was going to be, with... Uh, basically, you had no say-so in anything that happened for the entire early quadrant of your life. You were completely helpless and at the mercy of those who were making all the decisions around you. The essence of who you are, your DNA, is determined by people that you had no, nothing to do with. Nothing. There's nothing you did to cause yourself to be born. And there's nothing you can do to change the fact that you were. It just happened. Right? Now, you can choose. You have the freedom to choose, just like I do, how we're going to relate to those events. I can embrace the fact that I was born to a mom and a dad, I can embrace them as my parents or I can reject them. I can embrace the fact that they name me something or I can reject that. I can embrace the fact that this is who I am or I can reject that. I have the freedom to embrace it or reject it, but the truth remains, these things happened. I had nothing to do with them, and once they happened, there's nothing I can do about them in light of them, right? 1 Peter chapter 1, with that in mind, beginning in verse 3. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Birth. Let's think about this. The Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, who has, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now I want you to think for a moment that according to Scripture, according to Peter here, 
It's actually our birth that does define us. Except for it's not the birth that I was just talking about. It's now a rebirth. And so just in the way your natural first birth defines you, now the Scripture is saying you've been redefined because you've been re-what? Born. So when you're reborn... You're given a new name according to Scripture by God. You're, the, the essence of who you are is changed. And there's nothing you did to cause it. And there's nothing you can do about it. You can't change it or alter it in any way. Just like the first birth. And just like the first birth, you can choose to embrace the rebirth. You can choose to embrace all that God has done in you, in your, in your new life, in your rebirth, or you can reject it and you can rebel against it. That's your freedom to choose. But make no mistake about it, how you determine to respond to what has happened to you at salvation changes nothing about what happened to you at salvation. Nothing. And so the problem is, is that we get caught in this cycle of having endless uh, sort of conversations and endless worries and fretting and debates and struggles uh, about behavior modification and about doing this and doing that. And so what's happened is, is that in many cases, Christianity has been whittled down to a bunch of do's and don'ts. And therein lies the problem. That's exactly where the enemy has gotten the foothold that he needed. Once he changed our rebirth into a new mandate of behavior, we missed it. And so there's very little talk about who we are in Christ and a whole lot of talk about what we ought to be doing in Christ. And this is why I'm continually bringing this before you. Notice, now, thinking about this rebirth, look at verse 3, what the Scripture says. According to His great mercy, what does the Bible say? He, did you, you didn't do it, God did it. He caused it to happen. So what's happened has been because of God. It's about God, it's because of God. And so your true identity, whether you've, uh, embraced it or not, whether you experience it or not, whether you even understand it or not, is a gift from God that you couldn't have earned, you didn't earn, it's impossible to earn, it's a free gift. He gave you a new identity. And then you, mostly unknowing, very few people knowingly reject that. That's not what happens. You just unknowingly Reject your new identity by immediately beginning this process of behavior modification. In other words, not receiving your identity just by, uh, by default because we're busy doing, doing, behaving, behaving. So let's talk this out, okay? I know you're a little confused. I'm going to straighten it out. Here's my premise. Once Satan gets us to believe that what we do is who we are, then we have sort of 
we have jumped into this pit that has slippery sides that are really tall that is going to take an enormous amount of uh, ingenuity, help, and effort to get ourselves out of. In fact, you're not going to get yourself out of it. You're going to need help from your brothers and sisters. It's going to be a cooperative process. But you see, we have feelings about things. We have ideas about things. We, we have uh, thoughts about things. And so we choose to elevate our feelings about things and then allow those things to define us whether they're true or not. And it's happening all around us. I mean, it is our culture is literally riddled with this problem. A couple years ago, one of the greatest athletes in American history decided that he was a woman. And so Bruce decided to change his name to Caitlin. And so the guy who was on the cover of the Wheaties cereal box when I was a kid, who was an American hero to every little boy, now is wearing dresses, having gender change surgery, and his face is covered with makeup, and you get the idea. I was going to show you a picture this morning of the real Bruce and the new Bruce, but then I thought about these young leaders on the front row, and I didn't want to scar them any worse than this conversation already would. But what happened to Bruce Jenner? It's a great laboratory for this identity conversation. You know, he starts wearing women's clothes, he starts putting on makeup, changes his name to Caitlin, begins surgically altering himself. Let me ask you a question. No matter how Bruce dresses, no matter how Bruce looks, no matter how many surgeries Bruce has, Bruce can never change the reality that Bruce is a man. Because his identity is formed at his birth. And he was born a man. And no matter what he does, he will always be a man. But Caitlin thinks she's a woman. Why? Because she's basing her identity on how she feels. She feels like a woman, therefore she's a woman. She she wants to perform like a woman. She wants to, in other words, if you, you, can, you can base your identity on anything you want to. But what you must understand is it will have no bearing on reality. That at the end of the day, no matter, no matter how you alter yourself, no matter what you act like, no matter how much you camouflage it, no matter how much you cover it up, at the end of the day, your DNA remains the same. You are a man or a woman. So we live in a culture that is becoming more and more gender confused with every passing generation, right? And what is the problem? The problem is identity. And how has this happened? It's the same problem that's infiltrated the church. 
It's just that we're not cross-dressing. But we might look at uh, Caitlyn Jenner and, well, I mean, which is hard to do, I'll admit. It's hard to do. But be careful in your disdain. Because there's a whole bunch of folks you're related to in Christ that are basing their identity on something just as ridiculous as Bruce Jenner. You see, what happened to him at birth can never be canceled out. It can never be redone. It can't be uprooted. No matter how bizarre the behavior, no matter how outlandish the belief, no matter how strong someone says, but I, but I feel. You see, every conversation about I was born this way is the same thing. You weren't born that way. You were born about your identity was a choice you made. You made a choice to embrace this or to embrace that. And that's what you've supposedly become. But no matter what you think you become, you're still, you're still just a man or you're still just a woman. And when you're born again, you get a new identity. You get a new nature. The Scripture says you become brand new. And listen, whether you embrace it or whether you start cross-dressing as something you were never meant to be doesn't change the reality of what you were at your rebirth. That you have been changed at the DNA level, if so to speak. You are new. You, are a, you have a new nature according to Scripture. Alright? So, are there any... Are there any saved people here this morning who, if the truth be known on their name tag, if I couldn't write my name, be hello, I'm rejected. I'm unloved, I'm dirty, I'm shameful. I'm guilty, I'm unprotected, I'm alone, I'm abandoned. Anybody here living their life as if this was their uh, identity? In other words, right now, some of you in your head, you're thinking to yourself, but you don't understand. I feel that. That that's because of what's been done to me or because of things that I've done in my past that, that I feel that I am those things. Anybody writing down worthless Inadequate, hopeless, helpless. I know you're not publicly saying that. But I proved to you from Scripture last week that there is a direct correlation, an absolutely indeniable link between your behavior, and your identity. And so if you're here this morning and you're, you would, and I started preaching a sermon about Christian practice, you'd start sliding down in the pew. 
I'd start talking about how, you know, uh, what, what's, what seems to be the problem? How, how is it that we come to church and sing these songs and, and praise the Lord? But the reality is, is that the last five days, seven days since the last time you were sitting here, you haven't opened your Bible, you haven't read God's Word, you haven't spent time in prayer, you haven't been seeking His face, you haven't, you haven't told anybody about Jesus. If you really believed Jesus was as great as you sing that He is, wouldn't you think you'd be telling people about that? I mean, how many people live their life coming to church, sitting in pews, going to Bible studies, never lead a single person to faith in Christ? Not one person. How many people do that? How is that possible? And so I could just start, and you just you feel the pressure coming down on you. Now, here's how it's possible. It's because there's an identity problem. You don't know who you are. Therefore, you can try all you want to. You're never going to behave the way you ought to behave. If you don't know who you are, you will never practice Christianity the way it's meant to be practiced. Never. Never. The Bible, think about this. The Bible describes God. He describes himself in Scripture as the God of peace. Now just think about that one thing. Why don't you shadow me this week? I wish you could each take a week from house to house to hospital room to appointment to appointment to appointment to, to disaster after struggle after disaster after. And I would love for you to have a perspective on all of these people are followers of the God of peace. Where's the peace? How many of you walked in there this morning and say, I am walking in the peace of God? We have a tremendous identity problem. Tremendous. You know what every one of those words is? Rejected, inadequate, unloved, shameful, abandoned, hopeless, helpless, worthless. You know, you know what every one of those is? It's a performance measurement. That's what it is. Every one of those titles that we affix to ourselves, every word or whatever, you fill in the blank. I mean, performance, tell me your word, whatever it is, and I will show you that it is a performance gauge. That the way that you arrived at that, at that uh, word is either at something that you perceive as a failure or something that you perceive as a success. Either way, it doesn't matter. It's just as damning. If you're running around thinking you're, you're something because you're good at something, it's just as damning. Or you've just waved the white flag because there's no hope in trying to perform or live up to because something's been done to you or whatever the case may be, so you've lost. They're just performance measurements, every one of them. Every single one of them. It's like wearing a dress putting on makeup, and uh, just, you know, trying to conceal the reality of everything that's so obvious to the world around you. And some people are just better at it than other people. You see, some people put their bizarre gear on, and they're just good at it. And so when, when they come to church on Sunday morning, they look like they got it all together. But what you don't understand is they don't. 
There's a lot of cross-dressers running around, and you can't tell the difference. See? The world has been so successful at luring us into this sleep. And as long as we're clamoring for the, the strength and the, the power and all of these things to sort of behave in a certain way, we're just, we're just a gerbil running in a wheel. Around and around we go. The things I do, the things I do as a Christian will never determine my true identity. How life. You see, Bruce can never be a woman. But he can choose an identity that's going to drastically affect the way he experiences life, right? Yes. I mean, drastically. Well, in the same way, you and me can embrace an identity that is not ours, that is not what God has created us to be, and it is going to drastically impact the, the way we experience life. So here's how this plays out. You unknowingly identify yourself as something that God has not identified you as. And so you're walking in Christ, and your life is a perpetual sequence of struggles and defeats. And no matter how hard you seem to try, you never seem to be able to climb up the mountain. And no matter how close to the top you get, something always happens and you slide back to the bottom. And so you're working and you're working and you're trying and you're trying and it's just never seeming to work out. And you never seem to get to where you want to go. And I wonder why that is. And so how's life going for you? And so if somebody sits down or finally you just have, have had enough and you feel like you're at your breaking point, so you sit down... And you say, Pastor, I mean, what is wrong with me? Why does life's got to be so hard? Why is everything so jacked up? Why? How come it's just, oh, I mean, no matter what happens, we just keep going around and around in circles. Well, and there's no joy, and there's no peace, and there's no victory. And because... If you're making bad decisions, well, then your experience in life is going to be bad. That just is common sense, right? But what I'm trying to tell you is, is that if you don't have your identity right, no matter how good you are, you're not going to be able to sustain good decisions for long. Eventually, it's going to crash. It has to begin with identity. And your identity will always and only be about your birth. You've got to get that. It's your birth. It was your birth the first time, and it's your birth in the rebirth. It's only birth. That's it. Something that happened to you that you had no control over, you had no say-so in, it just is, it just was, that's just the way it is. Birth. You got that? Okay. So if that's true... Then the next question, number two, would be, well, what does my rebirth say that I am? Because this conversation wouldn't be very productive unless we got down to, okay, well, let's talk about this for a second. 
So many of you uh, contacted me this week or sent me emails or stopped me in the hall or told me how you've been, how the, the card last week and the scriptures on the back were so helpful to you and meaningful to you. And I've heard all these creative ways in which many of you have put that to practice in your life. And I mean, you know, everything from laminating the card and, and keeping it to uh, some of you have shown me your journals where you've written out every single one of those verses and all in context with all the implications and all of those things. And that's amazing and wonderful, and I'm so grateful for that. And so that's why this week I gave you another piece, another tool to lay on top of that to be a blessing to you. But who does your rebirth say that you are? Well, look at what... The scripture says in verse 3 again, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. Not according to our efforts, not according to anything we did, but His mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now let's just think about this for a minute. Is that a definition of your daily experience in Christ? Because it ought to be. Do you understand? It ought to be, regardless of whether you've been a Christian for a week or three or four decades... This is what happened to you in your rebirth. This isn't something that you behave your way into. This isn't something that you mature your way into. This is something that just is. So let's just talk through this for a second. I want to drive a few points home. You might want to just write out to the side of number two, because these next things aren't going to be on your handout, but you might just write out to the side. 1 Peter 1 3 and 4, especially 4, verse 4, so that you can, when you go back, you can remember these words. So the scripture uses these three central words. Imperishable is the first word. Imperishable. So that word means that it can never be defeated. It's always victorious. That you have been reborn. You've been reborn. And in your rebirth, you've been given a, a new nature. You've been given a hope. A hope that is imperishable. This word is a word that's often used for battle, for, to describe military conflict. And it's a word that Scripture affixes to a, an army or a unit of warriors that are not only, not only do they always conquer their enemy, but the difference about this word is that the more they are attacked, the more they fight, the more they battle, the stronger they get. The hope that has been put into you at your rebirth is a hope that never loses. It's always victorious. And the more the world wars against it, the stronger it gets. It's designed to grow stronger and stronger and stronger over time. So it is born in its infancy, undefeatable, and as time goes on, it even gets stronger and stronger. The more it's been attacked, the more it's been wore down. Which again, would, should be explaining to you, some of you in the room are thinking about people that you know that, are, that walk in Christ, 
that go through excruciatingly difficult times and yet seem to have the peace of God, seem to, to, to almost become more God-dependent and more in love with God and, and seem to just drive them deeper to, to God. And you wonder, how is it? I want what they have. Listen, they're just living in what all of us got in the rebirth. It's an imperishable hope. It's always victorious. So no matter what happens to you, it's victorious. This is the hope that Job had a hold of. We get a glimpse of that. You and me receive that hope the millisecond that salvation comes into your life. What about undefiled? Undefiled. Especially so many of you females in the room. God put a nature in you. He put a hope in you that's it's undefiled. It can't be damaged. It is perfect forever. Listen closely to what I'm about to tell you. Regardless of whatever attacks have come against it, regardless of the blows that it has sustained, regardless of the, of the no matter how hard the hit was that it takes, no matter how brutal the experience that it had to face was, it cannot be damaged. It, you, you cannot, in Christ, been defiled. That's been mourning with a nature, with a hope inside of you that's been defiled, that's been damaged, that's been somehow anything in your previous life, anything in your, it could have been yesterday, it could have been any time, no matter what it was, it cannot defile the hope that God put in you. Think about that. Think about how much bondage would just disappear if we could just get that sunk down deep into the hearts, especially of our sisters around us who so many of them walk feeling damaged, feeling defiled, embracing, allowing something that has been done to you to become part of your identity. No. It's, it cannot be defiled. And if you base it on how you feel, you're just Bruce Jenner. I recognize that. I'm not discounting how you feel. And I'm in no way discounting what's happened. I'm telling you, the Bible says... It's undefiled. It can never be defiled. It will always be undefiled. Always. Unfading. The seed that's been planted in us, this new nature, this hope that's within us, it gets more beautiful with every passing day. I think that some of us, we somehow have this idea that because we live in a world where everything created, everything around us is, is fading, everything has been touched by sin, everything is, has been, been, been warped by sin, and so everything over time gets worse. Nothing ever gets better. It's always breaking down. And so some of us have adopted that into our soul, and we've embedded that into part of who we are uh, in our own identity, and we've We've sort of grafted that into our being in a completely false and erroneous way. Listen. 
your hope, your new nature in Christ. As days pass, as, as the sand of time begins to go through the, the hourglass of your life, as those moments move on, it gets more and more beautiful. Now think about it. It does. Listen, and you think, to, this is what I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, but I don't feel like it is. I understand that. I'm trying to get you to abandon these crazy feelings. I know you don't feel like it is, but listen. Why does it get more beautiful with every passing day? And how do I know for sure that it does? Well, first of all, because the Bible says it does. But second of all, with every passing day, you are what? You are something. You are closer to perfection. Do you know what the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? The Bible says that the God of peace himself will present You, talking to every Christian. I want you to think about this for a second. Every single child of God, the God of peace himself, will present you blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's what's going to happen. Either Jesus is coming back or we're going. He's either coming or we're going. One of those two things is happening. There's no other alternative but those two things. And either way, whether he comes or we go, either way, you, if you're saved, you will be presented blameless. Now, I want you to just settle that in for a second. Blameless. No blame. None. Untarnished. Unblemished. Completely blameless. Now, why would we ever allow something to get into our consciousness, to come into our life, to, to, to set up camp in us and steal that away? I just dream of a day where all of us together, we open our Bibles and we read our Bibles. And we come across passages of Scripture that that challenge us practically. And things that we ought to do and ways that we ought to be. And instead of being defeated, we would read it and we would say in our heart, I want to do that. I have the potential to do that. And it hurts that I'm not doing that. But I want to do that and I have the potential to do that. I don't, I don't know how I'll get there. I don't know how, what it's going to look like. But if God calls me to do something and I'm his child, he's never going to call me to do something I can't do. Right? Well, what, what I'm trying to get you to see is that, you know, a year ago, I looked at James 1.27. And I said, God... I want to do that. Now, I know it seems impossible. 
And, and I know that it seems irrational. But you've called us to do that as a people. And so rather than just being defeated, rather than just, you know, I could have in that moment just labeled myself, well, I mean, what? I guess I'm just a failure as a pastor. Because here the Bible is, is telling us what we ought to be doing. We're not doing it, so we ought to. No. Instead, I look at that and I say, well, God, I believe we can do this. I mean, I don't know how, but you're calling us to it, so we're just going to walk by faith. We're going to trust you and see what you do. You see what I'm saying? What happens if all of us in our personal lives, in our walk with God, as we're, as we're treading through the pages of Scripture, instead of reading things that are just condemning you and defeating you when the Bible was never meant to do that, and then when you do come across this amazing reality like there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, you just get defeated even more because you feel condemned. What if, we, what if we just walked in what we are? Before we start trying to practice what we ought to do, if we just started with who we are. Imperishable. Undefiled. Unfading. Well, what a, what a truth. But you see, we're so chained. We're so chained to this right here. We're just in slavery to our feelings. There's a scientific study where a group of scientists took uh, they took six individuals and they brought them one by one into a uh, room. And they sat them down at a table and they explained to them that they were going to do a, uh, uh, a cultural experiment. And they, were, they had a, a Hollywood makeup artist come in and they, they put a horrific scar on their face. I mean, this thing, you know, it, it, you, you can't even tell. It's, I mean, it looks real. It's horrible. I mean, huge. And so they, they sat there and put this scar on their face, and then they hand them a little mirror, and they say, now I want you to look at this. And every one of them was like, oh. oh. And they said, now, we want you to go outside and we want you to pay attention to how people react to you. We want to study people's reaction to you with this scar on your face. The only rule is you can't bring up the scar. Don't say anything about the scar unless somebody says something about the scar to you. Okay? Okay. And then right before they left, they said, hold on. They took the mirror and put it away. They said, wait a minute, we need to touch up a spot. And... Uh, they peeled the scar off. And the person didn't know it. And every single one of them, not most of them, not some of them, every single person had the same experience. They went out, they walked around, they met people, they talked to people, they came back. And the, the researcher said, well, how did it go? And they said, it was terrible. 
people were staring at the scar the whole time. I noticed people's eyes wouldn't even look at me because the scar was so horrible. I felt so terrible. And they would ramble on about how it, it was just, it made me, it, it, and they would say, it just breaks my heart for people who have some kind of a scar like that. And they would go on and on. And then the researcher would hand them a mirror and they would go, oh, that's you. Listen, if you perceive that you have a scar, then everything you experience in your life is centered around that scar. You see, this is why so many people who love Jesus, but yet they, 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 relationally, you're a disaster. You fight and you quarrel and you bicker. You're, you're greedy. You're selfish. You are self-centered, narcissistic. You got all these problems because you're walking around and you've got this big scar somewhere and you think everybody around you is reacting to the scar and none of us can see it. We don't even know it's there. And God has healed it. But however you perceive yourself is going to impact the way you experience everything that you experience. Don't you see this? And so if you embrace who you are in Christ, the same thing will happen. The same thing. You'll walk around, you'll meet people, you'll experience things, and it will be completely different. And you'll have peace, and you'll have purpose, and you'll have meaning, and you'll have direction, and you won't, listen, you won't hit the panic button every time your circumstances take a turn for the worse, or every time, you just know that God's good, and He's sovereign, and He's with you, and we're going to make it. The Scripture says in Proverbs chapter 27, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. You understand? Listen, brothers and sisters, I'm telling you. How you think will make you experience life according to that identity. This is why before you start practicing things, you better be meditating on things that are good. You better be, you better be walking in who you are. Read the Bible with, with identity eyes. And watch what happens. There, all these things are going on that so many times people miss. If I'm not careful, I can get to the end of a week, some weeks, and just mully grub myself into a, 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 a pool of pity. Oh God, is anybody, is anybody a Christian? Where are they? Send me a Christian. But you see, here's the thing. I'm not looking. 
I'm not looking for behavior modification. I'm looking for regeneration. You know who the most miserable people in the Bible are? I mean miserable. And sorry. Not only they they fight constantly with each other. They can't get along. They are so impulsive. They're slaves to their, uh, their impulses and their lust. They're, they're riddled with sexual immorality. They're getting drunk all the time. They get bombed at the Lord's Supper. They come to church drunk. They're sleeping with people who aren't their wives and their own families. And they're miserable. They're absolutely the most miserable people in the entire Bible. The harshest words in Scripture are reserved for them. They're not the Pharisees. It's the church at Corinth. And I want you to consider for a moment, if you were the Apostle Paul, and God sent you to the church at Corinth, and you you knew all these things that were going on, Would you walk in there with your spiritual baseball bat ready to tee off some heads? I mean, we're fixing a a walking tall, this place right here. We're going to straighten this out. And what does Paul do? What is the first thing he says to the church at Corinth? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. To the church at Corinth. To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Wait a minute. These fools are acting like the worst pagans who ever lived. And Paul's smart enough to know, you're not going to fix any behavior until you fix identity. He walks in and the first thing he says is, now listen here. Sober up a little bit, now listen to me. You've been sanctified in Christ. You're saints. You are saints. That's how God sees you. That's how he refers to you. That's who you are. That's your identity. Now, that's not how you're behaving, and that's not what you look like, and that's why your experience is so bad, but that doesn't change the reality. And the first thing Paul does is address their identity. The first thing. So please, please, every parent in the room, listen very, very closely. You better pay close attention to your children's identity. And you better beware when your child identifies themselves by something that they do. They may be the best in the world at it right now. But so was Bruce Jenner. Be careful. If I had it all to do over again, I'd spend all my time on identity. I'd raise my children to know who they are in Christ. And I'd be very careful about any nicknames that they got or any ways that I refer to them or things that I celebrate in them. I would be very, very intentional. 
about shaping their identity correctly. Wonder how we got in the mess we are. Wounded, limping. I mean, you walked in here physically, but spiritually you rolled on a stretcher. You're a saint. Last night, after your family went to bed, you slid out, turned on your computer and looked at things that you ought never to even know exist. You're a saint. And the reason why you disgust yourself with your own behavior and you would do anything you said to yourself a thousand times, I'd do anything to quit, but I can't. It's because you don't know who you are. You don't know who you are. Your eyes were never meant to look at that. Some of you, just yesterday, words were coming out of your mouth that if... If you said it in this context, you'd be mortified. You've tried to quit. You don't feel like a saint, but you are a saint. You don't know who you are. There's a progression of truth in there. We're reborn. And we become something new. And we need to spend a little time finding out about what we become. And we don't need to, we don't need to swim in a fish tank full of, full of big fish that are swimming around trying to tell us how to behave. Christian is not simply a person who's forgiven and going to heaven. To say that so short circuits everything that a Christian is. You this morning, if you belong to Jesus Christ, if you've called out to Him and His blood has been applied to your sin, that you've been reconciled to God. You are forgiven. You've been born again. You've received a divine nature. Something supernatural came into what is natural. And you may be operating in nature. You may be walking in the flesh all for years. But it doesn't change the reality of what you truly are. In terms of your deepest identity, you are a saint. You are spiritually a child of God. You are His beloved son or His beloved daughter. It is one or the other. Everyone. 
He loves all of His children equally, He says in the book of Galatians. There's no favorite children amongst uh, his family, no, all of them are equally loved fully and completely. No one could be loved more because you're loved 100%. Because you're loved with the love that he has for Jesus. So in order to think, to come to the conclusion that God loves someone else in Christ more than he loves you, you would have to think that someone else is actually better than Jesus, which is impossible. So you, by default, cannot be loved any less than anyone else only as the love that God has for His one and only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21. It doesn't get any straighter than that. You are the righteousness of Christ in God. So being born again transformed me, last blank. It transformed me into something or someone who didn't exist before. If you leave this morning with the tools on the back of your handout and all you know is that at salvation you became something that did not exist before. What you are in Christ right now did not exist the first time you were born. For however many years you walk this life without Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, what you are right now did not exist then. You are not a converted sinner. That's not what you are. You're a saint. There's a difference. The Bible doesn't say to the converted sinners at Ephesus or Corinth or Galatia or Colossae. No. To the saints. Something changed. There's something new. It's different. There's been a metamorphosis that happened beyond ourselves. We didn't have anything to do with it. It just happened. God just did it. When you see a butterfly flying along, why don't you say, well, look at there. A converted caterpillar. Isn't that something? You don't say that because it's not a converted caterpillar. It's a butterfly. You're not a converted sinner. You're a saint. You're a saint. Something that didn't exist has now become a reality in salvation.